um, many of you know I was on vacation for a little while there, and right prior to my vacation, I uh, was we, my wife and I were attending our national conference for our denomination. Um, if you are familiar with our denomination uh, that we're associated with or affiliated with, it's the United Brethren in Christ. Uh, 250 years ago, we're noted for being the oldest denomination that started on American soil. That started on American soil. That wasn't a transplant. And so um, they celebrated, we celebrated our 250th year uh, over in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which I had forgotten how humid it is. And I know that we have humidity in Michigan, but I, but I'm telling you, it was humid <laughs> there. Uh, but anyhow, so so uh, 250 years, uh, and it started around Lancaster, Pennsylvania. In fact, just real quick, it started in a barn, Isaac Long's barn, which is still standing, which they were actually giving tours to. You know, you could jump on a bus and, and you take tours over to this barn, which is like our equivalent to Mecca, right? So you go over and you kiss the barn and you're good. I'm just joking. But, but no, we do go over and visit it. I remember as a kid, we went over and visited it. It's got a lot of history to it. The, the guy still, the guy that owns it now still uses it as a barn, but, uh, there's a lot of history to it. And so the story goes, some 250 years ago, uh, there was a guy by the name of Philip William Otterbein, and, and, uh, Philip William Otterbein was from Germany, and this is back in the 1700s. He comes over, or, yeah, close 1700s, early 1800s. He comes as a Reformed theologian to America to be a missionary. Uh, there was another guy by the name of Martin Baim, who was a Mennonite, who lived over in the Lancaster area, uh, and and he was uh, 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 these two individuals would eventually meet at this barn. So the story goes: what took place was Otterbein was here, and he started. He was a missionary, and he started uh, hearing this these messages that were a little bit different over uh, in this Lancaster area, uh, where people were talking about the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel. What does the gospel mean? And and so during that time, they were preaching hard. The gospel. And something took place with Otterbein that uh, he had this moment of... Uh, now, mind you, he's a pastor of a church. He has this moment of... I don't know if you would call it salvation or what you would call it, but he had this stirring of his spirit that after he kept hearing this message, it just overwhelmed him. And so the story goes that even someone approached him. He started preaching this message of the gospel because it just grabbed him. And he started preaching it in his church and one of his parishioners came up to him after the service and said, you talk about this gospel, what is it? How can I obtain that? And he said, literally said this, come back, let me talk to you a little bit later. He was so moved that he had to go home and begin to process what it meant for him. And so he became just overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, experiencing the Spirit of God. Martin Bain, and this was happening before the two met, but Martin Bain was a Mennonite, and he was he was a preacher as well, in a sense, and he was, the story goes that he was out attending his fields, plowing the furrows, and at the end of every furrow, he would get on his knees and begin to pray to God about this salvation, uh, that he, uh, somehow, God was just moving, and, and, and he, so he was feeling so overwhelmed by the Spirit of God, to the point where, in the middle of one of the furrows, he drops to his knees, and he says, I can't take this anymore, God. Whatever you're communicating to me, whatever it is, let it overcome me. Now you have a German that had this experience, a German theologian, Reformed theologian, where if you know anything about theology, it is the complete opposite, per se, than a Mennonite's theology. Martin Baim is preaching in Isaac Long's barn one night, and he's preaching about the gospel. Otterbein is so moved, 
He's at the, he's at this particular meeting or this 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 um, evening of preaching that he is so moved he stands up while, while Bame is preaching and in German he says we are united in Christ. All these other things. We can debate, we can negotiate, we can talk, but at the end of the day, we are united brothers in Jesus Christ. And it is about the gospel. Now I share that to say this, and that's how our denomination was formed. I share that to say this, and I'm going to be very authentic. I went into this national conference and I looked at the itinerary and it was just, it was, uh, pastors within would be giving, were our keynote speakers and I thought, why? <laughs> why, if we're having this big thing, why are we just having our pastors talk? Why don't we have some keynote speaker? But what I didn't realize at the time, that God showed up. And God, it was the most powerful conference I've ever been to in my life. Because we talked about the gospel, unity, and mission. The gospel, the first night, we talked about the gospel. And we talked about, Phil, you know, a little bit briefly about Otterbein and Bame, which is, what, which is what our denomination was built on and is still built on. And we talked about the gospel. And one of the things one of the pastors said during that one, one of the, the, his talk that evening, uh, he, he talked about, and if you guys remember the story about the revival that took place in Wales. Remember, the, I don't know if you guys remember this. But there was a revival that broke out in Wales and how it started was back in the early 1900s that literally swept across England. Hundreds of, hundreds and thousands of people were saved. How it started was from one question that was posed to a youth group. And that question was this. What does Jesus Christ mean to you? And it wasn't like one of those questions we throw out there like some philosophical you know, um, hypothetical question. But it was a question that had much sincerity to it that said, that asked, what does Jesus Christ mean to you? And one 13-year-old girl stood up and began to talk about how she loved Jesus with every aspect of her being. A 13-year-old girl. And from that simple moment of confession and testimony, this outpouring of God's Spirit began to fall. Thousands of people were saved from that one question being posed and answered by a 13-year-old girl that said, I love Him with every aspect of my heart. He's everything to me. At our conference, I thought about that question, what it meant to me. What does Jesus Christ mean to me? And I want to be honest with you, the more I thought about it, the more I realized it is so easy for us to get our eyes off of Jesus. We become so wrapped up into things that's happening in our lives personally. Our wants, our likes, our desires, our dislikes. We bring that wherever we go. We bring it into the church. We bring it wherever we go. And what can happen so easily is it no longer becomes about what do I truly believe or not just believe, but what do I truly think about Jesus Christ? What does He truly mean to me? It no longer becomes about that, but it becomes about all this myriad of stuff 
that we start introducing into that. And the next thing you know, the gospel, the gospel gets lost. The gospel. That we need a Savior. And that without Him, we're doomed. The gospel of Jesus Christ. What kind of stirred all that as well that leads up to me kind of sharing that with you is I, uh, Scott Stalker called me not, not too long ago. Well, this past week. Um, and we got to talking and he got to talking about, uh, well, first of all, I just want to give a shout out to the kid and, and hopefully we'll put together, we'll put together something to kind of show you, but the, the creation uh, tour that the kids got to do, the trip to the creation museum and the ark. And things like that. If you are part of Facebook and you were able to see some of the things that they experienced, it was just it was phenomenal. Um, and then Scott began to talk to me. It was either a couple of weeks ago. They had a youth uh, service, and they had a guy come in, a, a, an individual that I know, come in, and he shared his testimony. A young guy, just got out of the Marines, a young guy, and he shared his testimony, and the kids responded. And Scott said there was probably. 20-some kids there. And they responded to this message of the Gospel. And I'll be honest with you. As adults, I think a lot of times we think, well, I'm saved. It's over with, right? Until Jesus returns, I get to go to heaven. I'm not going to hell. I'm saved. I would question you and say, is that all there is to the gospel? Is it just about receiving the free gift of grace and mercy of Jesus Christ and then kind of sitting back and kind of going into this mode of just kind of coasting? Or, or, or we kind of, I mean, our life isn't full of zeal. Our life isn't full of passion to go and share the gospel. It becomes about all these other things. Our dislikes, our likes, our desires, this happening, that happening. Maybe in the campaign for everything else, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. Guys, when the gospel of Jesus Christ grabs a hold of us, it doesn't leave. But it's so easy for us to get distracted. And I, I pray that as we close our series here called Where's, the, Where's Trust? That you would ask yourself two questions. What does Jesus Christ truly mean to me? What does He truly mean to you? Is He worth following? Is He worth someone that you're going to surrender and commit your life to? And not just for the simple fact of salvation, but Jesus talks about the whole, the whole process being what? Deny ourselves, pick up our cross, and follow Him. Not once does it say, here you go, here's your free gift of grace and salvation. Just kind of coast and kind of hang back until I return. It's about having this vibrant, intimate relationship with Jesus. And our lives become changed. Our lives become radically changed. Not just for one time, but throughout our whole life. He continues to change us more into the image of Himself. More into the image of, the, of, of, of Jesus Christ. Where's trust then? That second question. Because so, so easily, Satan can subtly come into our lives and begin to deceive and we begin to take our eyes off Christ and our eyes aren't fixed on Jesus anymore. They're fixed on all these other things and we become vastly distracted. We become, we become very discouraged or, or frustrated or whatever it is. And I'm saying this, through this whole series, if you have some of these symptoms in your life, would you please spend time with Jesus and ask Him, is, where am I at? 
Because I want to tell you something. If we're struggling with anger over and over and over and over again, something's wrong. Bitterness, jealousy, control, pride. Those things are not from God. I get that we're human. I understand that. Believe me, I understand that. But when those things become evident and they become scattered across the landscape of our spiritual walk, something is off. Something's off. Do I truly trust Jesus? Does He truly have my heart? Or doesn't He? I want to end this this series talking about bitterness. And in Hebrews um, chapter 12, verses 14 through 15 on the screen here, the writer of Hebrews says this, this first, pursue peace with everyone. And I love this, and holiness. Pursue peace with everyone and holiness. Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up. Because what's going to happen? It causes trouble. And by it, it by it defiling many. You see, what happens is, bitterness contaminates everything. If something happens within our lives, if some little seed drops within our lives, if it's not taken care of, if it's not, if it's not attentive to, if there's something that happens to us in our, in our lives, and, and it is not taken care of, it can grow up into a root of bitterness. And you remember how, remember how Jesus talks about the, uh, I think it's in John 15, where he talks about the tree. Either John, is it John 5 or John, now I'm starting to question myself. In John, maybe it's 5, but anyhow, he talks about the tree and how we bear fruit, staying connected to the vine, right? Because what happens with a vine? You know, if a vine's connected to the root and it's growing and everything, you're going to produce fruit. Paul talks about this fruit. Of, of the Spirit, of, of peace, gentleness, faith, love, joy, hope, those things. The fruit of the Holy Spirit. Just like that root and that vine there, if there is a seed of bitterness that becomes evident, becomes planted within the soils of your hearts, because I believe that's how Satan works. He doesn't come in and drop some big, big already manifested tree within your life. It comes in as a wee little itty bitty seed. And if it is not identified and taken care of, what can happen is it produces this vine, it produces this, this tree of bitterness within our lives. And once that becomes manifest, all this negative fruit that's not of God, all this negative fruit begins to, to manifest itself in our lives. Bitterness. Bitterness. And it contaminates. I pray that as we, as, again, as we close this series, that, that, that we would just, you know, really entertain what God has for us this morning to say, is this part of my life? Do I have bitterness? Is this something within my life that I have? Some of you may be able to say, yeah, it is. Some of you, some of you are carrying bitterness and have had it for some time now. You, and, and you can go back and you can track and it's because of this right here or this right here. And you know exactly what it is. You can put your finger on it. 
Some of you may be kind of in that state where something may have happened or recently or whatever, and it's very, it's very subtle, but Satan may have come in into the soils of your heart and has dropped this wee little seed, this wee little seed, and you don't, you're not really aware of it now. You're kind of aware of it, but you're not really aware of it. And if, and, and again, it can, it, it can just bring about this, 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 this root of bitterness within our lives. Now, I want to share with you a story, and I'm going to share with you a story from, from Genesis, uh, the last part of Genesis. And if there's a guy that, 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 that could have really embraced some of the things that we're, that we've talked about in this series. Anger, um, uh, pride maybe, uh, bitterness, all these things, it could have been this individual. And if you've read the story and you will give me permission, I want to share with you, uh, very briefly, very quickly, uh, just kind of catch you up to speed on his story, but it's a guy by the name of Joseph. Okay? Now, when we take a look at the life of Joseph, and you want to turn with me to Genesis chapter 50, But I just want to bring us up to speed where he's at. Because in Genesis chapter 50, what we read is about his death. Okay? So let me, let me read this and then we will, then we will go to... Uh, I want to share with you a little bit about his life. If, if you're not familiar. In, in uh, chapter 50, verse 15, it says this. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, If Joseph is holding a grudge... Okay? If Joseph, this is what we're talking about today, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. You see, that's what bitterness does. A seed drops in, it becomes manifest, and the next thing you know, we're reacting in ways that we shouldn't react. Okay? And they're saying it here. If, he, if, if our brother's got a, judge, a grudge against us, we, we, you know, he, he could certainly repay us for all the suffering that we caused him. So he's justified, right? In 16, so they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brothers. Transgression, uh, your brothers, your brothers transgression and their sin, the suffering they caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. Then his, then his brothers also came to him bowed down before him and said, we are your slaves. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. I'm in the, am I in the place of God? You who plan, this, this is a verse many of you know, some of you have this as a life verse. You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Verse 21, therefore don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now, what sparked all this? Some of you may be familiar with his life, but what really sparked this was Joseph, uh, his father Jacob had uh, had two wives, Rachel and Leah. He absolutely loved Rachel. Okay, um, he, he he worked for Rachel. If you've read that story, he worked for. He got deceived. Uh, instead of instead of uh, getting uh, the hand of, of of Rachel, Laban, his father-in-law, gave him the hand of Leah, the his other his other daughter, and so he had to work extra years now for Rachel. His his heart was 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 all about Rachel. Okay, and so when they started having kids, the one that he didn't favor so much started having a lot of kids, and, and there was Rachel that not having any, and kind of thinking in her mind. Here we go, man. I'm gonna I'm gonna be losing the love of Jacob. So any, nevertheless, they continue to have kids, and they continue to have kids through their maidservants and things. But Rachel produces a child by the name of Joseph. Joseph was the youngest, and he was absolutely he was the one that was loved.
so much by Jacob to the point where it was probably a little bit unhealthy, right? So as Joseph is growing up, uh, his dad, his dad did everything, uh, favored him so much. Uh, it was very apparent. His brothers were really disgruntled with it. His dad at one point made him the coat of many colors, if you remember that story. And so Joseph was this young guy, and his brothers really were really, they just, kind of, they didn't really like him too much. Well, to put the icing on the cake, Joseph has a couple dreams, right? One of those dreams talks about, uh, really kind of talked about his family bowing down and serving him, okay? Now, if you're a sibling and your youngest sibling came to you and said, hey, one day you're going to bow down and worship me, chances are there's going to create some friction within that relationship, right? So that was kind of like the climax. So they take the brothers. Uh, the brothers were out tending sheep one day. Joseph's coming out either to give them lunch or something. Uh, and as he's coming out, they see him from a distance. And his brothers are so full of hate at this point, they're like, you know what, let's take him and let's kill him. I mean, that was what they were going to do. Let's kill him. We're tired of this. Let's kill him. And so one of the oldest brother, Reuben, said, you know what? Let's not kill him. Let's do something different here. So uh, to make a long story short, what they did was uh, they took him. They threw him in a pit. Okay. They took his coat of many colors that he had. Uh, and he, they took it and they smeared a bunch of animal blood on it. And then what they did with Joseph was they kept him in a pit and then they eventually sold, sold him into slavery from some guy, some caravan that was passing through that wasn't even part of their, their, their nation. Okay. So now Joseph is done, man. He, and he, and by the way, he's only about what, 16, 17 years old. He's in the prime of his life. Okay. He gets sold into slavery. So now the brothers go back and tell their father, Hey, we just, we just, uh, we just found out that Joseph got killed by a wild animal. And that's how they, they, you know, gave him, showed him the coat with the, with the blood and all that stuff. Joseph now is over in slavery. We pick up on that story. So now he's sold by his brothers, right, in the prime of his life. In the prime of his life, he's sold by his brothers to slavery. He is is sold a couple different times, but he gets uh, he gets he gets he gets into um, a, a situation where uh, he's bought by this guy by the name of Potiphar. And so he's, and, and throughout his life, we read that it says the Lord was with Joseph. Everything Joseph did, he would prosper. I mean, he was, a, God was developing him as a leader and everything he touched, he would, he, it just prospered. Potiphar, this guy that bought him, had some, had some, you know, he was kind of big in the, in, in the system, uh, well to do or whatever, a big leader in the system. Uh, and so he takes Joseph and he makes Joseph one of his key, key players in his, you know, in his life or whatever. Potiphar's wife, if you remember the story, Potiphar's wife, if you read it, Potiphar's wife gets eyes for Joseph, right? So then she goes and she does her thing. Joseph says, I don't want any part of this. He runs out of the room and she grabs a hold of his cloak or whatever he's wearing, rips it as a piece of his fabric, goes back to Potiphar and says, look what your servant did. He tried to overtake me. He tried to have his way with me. And here's a piece of his, you know, his cloak. So they track him down. They throw him in prison. Now he's sold into slavery. He's falsely accused. His integrity is falsely accused. And now he's in prison. In prison, he interprets some dreams. Uh, God's with him, enabling him to interpret some dreams. He tells one of the individuals that had this dream, uh, hey, when you get out, would you please remember me? The guy gets out and forgets, okay? 
So then eventually the Pharaoh at that time had a dream. And, and again, we're spanning over years now. The Pharaoh at that time had a dream. Uh, it, they tell him that there's this guy in prison that can interpret dreams. So he gets out and he interprets this dream. And to make a long story short, he takes Joseph and promotes him to really second in charge. He was over top. He ruled everything over Egypt except the authority of the Pharaoh. So he was at the top. Now over here, meanwhile, back at the camp, right, you have... Jacob's family, his brothers, are experiencing famine. And so now they're going to go to Egypt, right, to get some food in which Joseph oversees that. Correct? So now his brothers come and they're asking for food and Joseph recognizes him, but them, but they don't really recognize him. So we go through these different things and then finally uh, everybody recognizes each other. And now what you have is this situation right now, whereas they're saying, holy cow, our brother that we sold into slavery uh, is in charge and he could have our heads. Now, let me ask you this question. Did Joseph have a reason to be better? I get that we're in church and we'll say no, right? I bet we get bitter over things less than that. He's sold into slavery. Can you imagine that? He's stripped away from his family at 16 or 17. Stripped away from his family. Growing up in places he doesn't, doesn't even know. He's, he's in prison. He's in situations that are, that are absolutely foreign to him. I mean, just absolutely trapped. He gets accused of, of, of his integrity accused. He gets, he gets all these things thrown. This, if there's anybody that deserved to be bitter, it would be this individual right here. And what can happen very easily if we're not careful, and we see this with Joseph, there's one thing that he did not do, he did not take his eyes off God. He never took his eyes off God. And what can happen so easily, as you're going to see here, is that we can take our eyes off Jesus. And as soon as we take our eyes off Jesus, and we lose that trust in Jesus, Joseph never lost his trust in God. He looked at the whole situation and he said, you know what, this is God. God's in control regardless. If Even if I'm thrown in... I mean, look at all the things that he went through. Look at every single thing that he went through. His life was destroyed by his brothers. He went through all of these things, but yet his integrity remained intact. He stayed focused on God and said, you know what, my life is God's. If there's anybody that had the right to be better, it would have been Joseph. But yet he stayed focused on God. Because what can happen so easily when we divert our eyes off of Jesus, that's when these things start to emerge in our lives. That's when fear takes us. Because now we're starting to look at things from our own capacity. Now we're starting to look at things uh, that's happening within our own life, events or whatever it may be, with our own capacity of how we're going to fix it of our own human strengths. Because our eyes have been taken off Jesus. Where's the trust? I'm encountering this situation in my life. Do I trust Jesus implicitly? Is that what Jesus means to me when I say that I want to follow Him? Or do I take things in my own hands? Do I take control? Do I allow my pride to kick in? Do I deal with bitterness? Do I deal with jealousy? Do I allow those things to become evident within my life? Or do I stay focused implicitly on Jesus and understand that regardless of what things may seem, Jesus is still in control? And that's what Joseph did. First thing is this. Identify who or, who or what you are bitter with. 
This is the, this is the thing that helps us. If, if, if you're gonna, if, if you notice a little seed of bitterness, the first thing you need to do is identify who or what you are bitter with. Okay? Identify it. Identify it. Talk about it in your mind. Talk about it with Jesus. Talk about it in your prayer life. Pass it on in prayer life to say, God, this, this, I'm, I, I'm developed, I'm having these feelings, and I need you to overtake these. You see, Joseph knew exactly who he could have been better with. He knew exactly. He could have easily wiped out his brothers. He could have easily said when they came to him that very first time to say, hey, we need some food and they didn't recognize him and he recognized them. It would have been so easy of humanists to say, "Mm -hmm, "Okay, now's my chance. Now is my chance to get back. Now, some of us may say, well, I wouldn't be that blunt about it. I'd be a little bit more diplomatic about it. But yet you'd still get the point across that I know who you are and you better bow down. That's not what Joseph did. That is the opposite of what Joseph did. He he knew who he was better with, but yet he didn't remain. He kept his eyes focused on God and he didn't allow it to consume him. The second thing that we can do with this is cancel the debt. Forgive. You know, it's quite amazing in psychology and counseling nowadays. And I've shared this with you, I believe there is a new thought. OK, this is a new theory, kind of. It's a new theory that is being being used within within secular counseling. And you know what it is? Forgiveness. What a novel idea. How is it? How is it that the world can counsel others in secular Psychology and counseling, helping people to forgive, but yet at times within the church we struggle with it. We know it. We know it. In fact, the person that we, hopefully, the person that we worship is the one that ultimately forgives and forgave. At some point, having a seed of bitterness within us, we've got to come to the realization that, you know what? It's time to cancel the debt. This isn't mine to own. Did you pick up on what Joseph said? Joseph said, he, when they said to him, um, he, he said, Therefore, please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept. And when their message came to him, then his brothers also came down, bowed down to him. And they said, we are your slaves. But he said this, but Joseph, but he said this, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? That's a powerful question, because you see, when we can't cancel a debt and we can't forgive, we are putting ourselves in a position where we're saying, I'm God. I'm God. That's what we do within our lives. when We take control of things. When we when we allow these things to kind of emerge in our lives, we say, you know what? I'm God. I can take care of this. Instead of keeping our eyes laser focused on Jesus and surrendered to him and submitted to him, we can say, you know what? I got this one, God. The, 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 the problem is we don't have it. And the problem is that it reaps destruction within our lives. And the last thing, as the worship team, if you want to come back up, the last thing that happens that, that we need to do is to bless them. You realize how hard, I, I, man, I get that that's hard. I get that that's absolutely hard. But when you look at the life of Joseph, he followed that path. He, he knew who he was bitter with. He canceled their debt. He was like, who am I, God? Am I the one? It's, I'm not the one you have to really answer to. God's the one you have to answer to. I'm not going to be sitting in his seat. And he literally blessed them. They get this letter. He gets this letter and he literally weeps. 
And as we continue to read the story, we read that he invited the family over. In fact, if we would go back and really do some some study on this passage of Scripture, this is exactly when the nation of Israel started to become huge. When they started multiplying. They be, they, that's how they ended up in Egypt. Later on, when we talk about the Exodus, how did they get in Egypt to begin with? They have to leave right here. It started with right here and his family came over and it said that when Joseph was in was Joseph and his family was there, it was a probably about 70 or so of them at that particular point in time. Right now, probably 70 or so of them. And when they left Egypt, it is estimated that there was millions of them. God blessed them exponentially. I'm not so sure how God could bless them exponentially. Clear back to the beginning if Joseph would have said, I'm going to wipe you out. I'm going to let this bitterness overtake me. I'm going to allow these. I'm going to play God. You're going to be held accountable by me. I'm the one that will take care of this. Instead, he forgave. He canceled their debt. He knew who they were, but he canceled their debt. He forgave and he blessed them. Guys, I pray that as you leave here today, you will truly think about the question. There's two questions. What does Jesus mean to me? Because if Jesus means something to me, that means my life is going to be lived differently. It's not about it's not about me being judged. It's not about me harboring this bitterness. It's not about me being angry. It's not about me having to have control. It's not about me allowing my pride to take over. It's about me living in a state of humility and humility and contriteness and in surrender to Jesus, denying ourselves picking up our crosses, and following Him. I pray that Element would start a movement for God. I pray that when God, His presence would just sweep this place, overwhelm us, and we would be, and not for our sake, not for our glory, but people could look back and say, something started here in this church at this time. People surrendered. People became contrite. People became in awe of God. I pray that would be spoken of us. Would you bow your heads and let me close with a word of prayer. Father, first of all, we can't do any of this stuff without you. In our humanness, it is going to go, it's the antithesis of what you want. It's going to go in the complete opposite direction. It is going to be about me. It's going to be in the spirit of Satan, really. Our pride. It's about, you know, it's about us. What we can do. It's all about us. Father, I pray that that would not be true of us sitting in here today. I pray that in this room right now, your spirit would just find freedom. I pray that hearts would be humble. I pray that each and every one of us sitting in here this morning would just become so humble to you and for you. I pray that we would just submit to you and allow your spirit to have complete control of our lives. I pray that if there are those in here that have seeds of bitterness within their lives, Father, that that, that, that would be exposed today and that they would, they would take it and they would allow you to just get rid of it from within their hearts. I pray that we would respond in a way that you would have us to respond and people would leave here today either with new lives or re-energized lives or recharged lives or whatever, but we would become so passionately full of zeal 
to share your gospel knowing that you mean everything to us. That our lives are about you and not us. I pray that as we close with this last song that we would respond to your spirit in the way that you would have us to respond. And it's in, it's in Jesus' awesome, most loving, sweet name that we pray this prayer. Amen.